You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Yeah, thank you, Pastor Patrick. Well, good evening, guys. Great to see you here. Tonight, we're going to talk about urgent prayer. Urgent prayer. And I hope to have some time at the end where we can actually spend time in prayer. Pastor Ross will lead us in a, a season of prayer. Pastor alerted a few of us on Friday. He may need to leave town to, um, to help his son and, and daughter-in-law get ready for a baby. And so the passage the Lord put on my heart was Isaiah 38. So that's where we'll be in just a little bit. Uh, so Pastor and Miss Debbie are in Florida. They're, there's no grandbaby yet, but they're there helping and helping them get ready for the upcoming transition. But he should be back here on Sunday. Uh, there's a man named Tamir Jalot who knows something about hearing tragic news. Tamir was born in the United States. He grew up for a little while in California while his parents were students in college there. And his family moved back to Israel in 1964. He grew up. He had a, a pretty normal childhood. He played soccer. He went into the field of law. He stayed in that for a while. Then he decided to make a career change and earned an MBA and, and began working as an entrepreneur. In 2010, something changed. He he had an uncomfortable feeling, or really a pain in his upper stomach, went and had a CAT scan and discovered he had cancer in one kidney and it was also in his pancreas. And so he was talking to the doctor and the doctor said, look, you know, you only have a few months to live. I don't recommend you taking treatment. Why don't you just enjoy your time, tell your friends and family goodbye, go see the world. And uh, Tamir thought about it and he decided, well, I'm going to go ahead and do treatment anyway. And so he began doing that. He did all that he could. He exhausted all the options, and the, the cancer spread, and it got to the point where he said, well, I, I believe my, my, end is, my time has come. The end is near. And he went to bed thinking, I, I need to tell my friends and family goodbye. The next morning, he received a call and said, hey, come to the hospital. And so he went to the hospital and discovered that he could be part of a clinical trial, and there was a certain medication that was available to him. So, of course, he took it, and and he began to get better. And month after month, he began, just kept taking this, this new drug. And months went by, and next thing you know, it's been over four years. And so after 51 months of surviving, when he was told he had three months to live, Tamir all of a sudden felt more pain. And he went to get another ultrasound, and the cancer had spread to multiple organs. Now, can you imagine being someone like Tamir and having to hear the tragic news over and over again that you might not live much longer? Some of you have probably heard that. And if you haven't, you probably know someone who has. And tonight I want to talk about how do we respond when we hear tragic news? It could be news with our health. It could be friends that are in financial ruin. It could be the tragic news of someone's going through a divorce or they're announcing that or there's tragic news in our country, and we want to talk about how do we respond to that? Do we just disconnect? Do we just go to our little place and remain aloof and say, well, it doesn't involve me? Or do we get angry? Do we lash out at people? Do we, um, do we pray? Do we do both? What are we supposed to do as Christians when we encounter tragic news? And so if you will, look at Isaiah 38. We're going to see one of the kings of Judah, a godly king, he heard some tragic news about his own personal health, and he responded in prayer, and what happened after that is just downright shocking. 
And I've been fascinated by this passage. And I just have one simple point for you, a few application questions, and then I just want us to spend some time in prayer. But Isaiah 38, we're just going to look at the first six verses. It begins by saying, In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. Hezekiah was the king of Judah. By this time, he had been king for about 14, 13, 14 years. He was a great king. And the prophet Isaiah, of course, was ministering in Judah. He had been a prophet for nearly 40 years by this point. So he was a trusted, faithful man, had had a ministry of integrity. The world power at that time was Assyria. Assyria was looking to expand its borders to take advantage of other countries. And so they were well on their way to doing that. They conquered Samaria in 722, and now they're inching closer to, uh, it, to Judah. Now, what's interesting, if you read the previous two chapters, you read about how the king of Assyria, they came up to the doorstep, really, of Jerusalem, and they're trying to intimidate the, the people of Judah. And Hezekiah prays this prayer of faith. He says, now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, talking about the king of Assyria, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. And what's interesting, this happened after chapter 38. Chapter 38 happened first. Chapter 36 and 37 happened about two months later. And the reason Isaiah probably reversed the order is that uh, this fits the theme of his book more appropriately. And he records God's deliverance before he records what God said about what or about how he would deliver Judah. And so this sickness is before what happens in 36 and 37. And so we're not told the nature of Hezekiah's sickness. I read it could have been the bubonic plague. and we're, we're, Nobody knows. We're, we're not told. We just know it was serious. He became sick and was at the point of death. So the prophet Isaiah goes to him. We don't know if Hezekiah called him or if God just told Isaiah, this is what I want you to do. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz, came to him, that is to Hezekiah, and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. If you interpret that more literally, it says, Command your house, for you're dying, and you shall not live. The Net Bible says this, Give instructions to your household, for you are about to die. You will not get well. Now, Hezekiah had every reason to believe what Isaiah said. Isaiah had been a prophet 39, 40 years. I mean, no one's going to question what Isaiah said. He's speaking for God. So he takes this as truth. I'm sure he's wondering, what have I done or what have I not done? Um, what, what's going to happen after me? He says, you know, set your house in order. His house was not in order. He didn't have an heir to the throne. And he's, it, it's, it's a challenging time for him. So verse 2 says, how's he going to respond? Verse 2, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. I believe he turned his face because he just wanted to have that, uh, just some, he was able to focus completely on the Lord. I'm going to turn away from this, this issue. I'm going to turn my face completely on God. I'm going to focus on him. And he says, please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. 
Now, at first, when you first read that, you may think, well, you know, he's kind of full of himself. He's talking about how good he's lived and how faithful he's been, and he's got a whole heart. That just seems kind of arrogant. But I don't, I don't believe that's what's happening here. I believe Hezekiah knew his Bible. See, he knew Deuteronomy 30.16. This is what it says. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. That was before the Israelites crossed the Jordan into the promised land. Moses was saying, hey, you obey, there's blessing. You obey God, there's blessing. That's that's a general principle in the word of God. So Hezekiah knew that, and he was saying, God, I have obeyed you. I have walked with you. I've had deep fellowship with you. And uh, because of that, would you please remember me? Would you please have mercy on me? When Hezekiah, you may wonder, well, what all all did, did big Hezekiah do? Well, when he became king in 715, he was 25 years of age. You have to, there's a couple other passages, 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 29 through 31, um, 29 through 31. It gives you some commentary on Hezekiah's life as king. This is what he did. When he became king, he became co-regent at age 11. So he was the prince at age 11. His dad was king. He didn't have much influence, but his dad was a, led a, a pagan country at that time. And so by the time Hezekiah became king, he was fed up with the idolatry. And and so the first month he was on the job, he started cleaning house, literally. Cleaning cleaning out the temple so they could worship there again. He removed the relics used for idol worship in Judah. Verse 7 says he broke off ties with the king of Assyria. So we're not going to serve you any any longer, king of Assyria, and in your pagan ways. We're not going to have that type of of relationship with you. And so... um, 2 Chronicles 29, 31 just details all that he did. He cleansed the temple. He restored temple worship in Jerusalem. He put the priests and Levites back to work and celebrated the Passover. The end of 2 Chronicles chapter 30 says this. There was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Man, this was revival. I mean, he came on the scene and just started cleaning house. There weren't even enough priests to do the work or Levites, but somehow he got it done. They have a Passover. There's revival. So that's what he's talking about. He said, God, I've, I've been faithful to you. I have served you. I, I've called people back to you. So God, please, please have mercy on me because of my obedience to you. Now, the term for remember is a command. But it really means when you're talking to God, you see, we don't, we don't command God to do anything, but he's really saying, please remember. God, please, please have mercy on me. Would you just please spare my life? That, that, that's how he's praying. The end of verse 3 says, and he wept bitterly. It literally means he wept with great weeping. He, he, had, he, he wept uh, copiously. He was distraught. He was devastated. Why would he weep bitterly? He was probably 39 years of age at at this time. And I would imagine he had some unfinished business in his life. He had some things I'm sure he wanted to do. I'm sure he wanted to have children. That had not happened yet. He had dreams. His house was not in order. Who's going to take over Judah? All of these things are probably going through his head. Maybe I wanted to do more for God. All those things are, and so he's weeping. He's, He's sad. He's in bitter distress. 
And so he prays. Now, in response to Hezekiah's prayer, you have to go to 2 Kings verse 20, and it says in verse 4, that before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah. Isn't that interesting? Just like immediate answer from the Lord. Wouldn't you like to have an answer like that? I mean, before you leave the room tonight, you just, you know, God, I'm struggling with this. Boom. Here's what you need to do. I mean, Isaiah had not even gotten out, outside of the, the temple proper, and now he's turning her back around to go back in there and tell Hezekiah an update. And so there was a quick answer. This, this message was much better than what Isaiah just delivered. So Isaiah comes back in there. He sees um, Hezekiah, and he says this. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Isn't that wild? Now, why would he say the God of David? We have to pay attention. These are just little things in Scripture. I believe he's referring back to 2 Samuel 7. He's referring to the Davidic covenant. Remember where God appeared to David? He said, you're not going to build a temple for me, but someone will be um, from your house will be on the throne forever. Now, he's talking initially about Solomon, but ultimately about Jesus. So he's saying, Isaiah or Hezekiah, I will be faithful to, to my servant David, which now impacts you because you're in that line. So Hezekiah, you may not be concerned about that, but God says, I'm concerned about that. I'm concerned about my promise. And I said I would be faithful to David, and that's what I'm going to do. So one source said, God is even more concerned about the continuance of David's dynasty than Hezekiah is. And so that's why he says, the God of David, your father. God's plan is going to continue, even in the midst of this. And so he says, I've, I've heard your prayers. I've seen your tears. Hezekiah's brokenness moved the heart of God. Isn't it interesting how Hezekiah made this long, or it wasn't long, but he made this speech about his devotion, his faithfulness, his wholehearted commitment to God. And, but God doesn't respond with any of that. He doesn't respond and say, you know what? I've seen that. I've seen your obedience, and it flat out impresses me. He doesn't say that. I've seen your faithfulness. You're right, Hezekiah. I've noticed that. I've been watching this whole time. He, he doesn't say that. that. That's not what the Lord said. He just says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. God didn't mention anything about Hezekiah's obedience to him. You see, God's not impressed with our obedience. He expects it. If you have young children, don't you expect them to obey you? God expects us to obey him. It's not, he's not impressed with it. When, when Jesus says make disciples, that's what he expects us to do. Uh, in Luke 17, Jesus was talking with his disciples, and this is what he said. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come in at once and recline at table? No, no, no. He's not, the master is not going to say that. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Because that's, that's when servants would eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what, what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. God's not impressed with our obedience. He expects it. That's our duty. We obey him out of our love for him. And it brings honor to him, but that's what he expects us to do. And so the Lord said, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. And so he said, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. 
Now, we're not told that Hezekiah had asked for that. As far as we know, he didn't ask for 15 years. But he died in 686 B.C., so this was probably 701, somewhere thereabouts. But here's an interesting question. Because before, God says, you're going to die. And now he says, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. So does this mean that, did, does God change his mind? This is one of those theological questions we need to, we need to think through here. Um, so wh- how are we supposed to handle that? Well, one of the attributes of, of God is that he does not change. Okay, the theological word is immutability. God is immutable. Um, so if you want to impress someone tomorrow, just say, yeah, God's immutable. And it just means he doesn't change. All right, so what we want to say from Scripture is that God does not change in terms of his being his purposes, and his promises. God does not change. Remember Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So in his being, God does not change. He he remains the same. He's outside of time. He's always existed, always will. He does not change. Psalm 102 says that God laid the foundations of the earth. They will perish, but God will remain. He continues. Verse 27 says, but you are the same and your years have no end. Numbers 23, 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Psalm 110 verse 4 says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Psalm 33, 11, talking about the purposes of God, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Okay, so God does not change. So what's happening here? Because God said this, and now he did something else. What's happening? It appears that God changes his mind here. There are times in Scripture where it appears that's what happens. Let me give you an example. Ezekiel 32, you remember there had been false worship, and God said, I've seen it. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Now, God sounds serious about that, doesn't he? He, he, was, he was serious. We would take, yes, okay, this, this is going to happen. But here comes Moses, verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? Why should the Egyptians say? And he goes on to implore, and he says, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. And what does God do? God relented. God changed his mind there. The word uh, relent is the same Hebrew word translated change his mind in Numbers 23, 19. So in Exodus 32, God relented. Verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. What about the book of Jonah? Remember, the prophet showed up at Jonah, Jonah at, uh, sorry, at Nineveh, and Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall perish or shall be overthrown. Well, that, that didn't happen, remember? They repented. And so it fur- infuriated Jonah, but the people were spared, so God had mercy. So there are times when the Lord states a general policy like Nineveh, and like Hezekiah's life. But some prophecies of judgment and blessing in Scripture are conditional, meaning that God reserves the right to cancel them or reverse them depending on people's response to his word. Are you with me? I'm trying to go going slowly through this. 
Sometimes a word of warning or judgment has a condition attached to it pertaining to one's obedience or disobedience. The issue is we don't know when that's the case or not. We don't know when there's a condition. That's above our pay grade. Okay, Wayne Grudem says, this is just saying that God responds differently to different situations. Yes, he's sovereign. He can judge or bless according to his plan. So God's word of judgment on Israel in Exodus 32 and on Hezekiah were declarations. This is what God was planning to do. This is what one source said. But then the situation changed. Someone started to pray earnestly. And when Hezekiah prayed, when Moses prayed, God decided, I'm not going to bring the judgment that I said I would. Okay? So prayer itself was part of the new situation and was, in fact, what changed the situation. God responded to that changed situation by answering the prayer and withholding judgment. So bottom line, our job is to pray. God decides what he wants to do. Does that make sense? Our job is to pray. Our job is to call out to him. And it's up to him whether he will heal, whether he will reverse, or whether he will not. In his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, so I know some of you probably read that. Pastor Jim Simbla just tells such a moving story. That book is full of them, but here's, here's one that I thought was so moving. There's a man named Ricardo who got saved, had a pretty wild life, but got saved and had already contracted AIDS and was, was, was nearing death. One Sunday, Pastor Simla got a call from Betty, Ricardo's wife, and just said, hey, Pastor, will, will, you, will you talk with Ricardo? He's, he's not doing well. He's really weak, but he'd really love to talk to you. And so he got on the phone, and Ricardo just said, hey, thank you for, for how you love me. Uh, I just want you to know that. And Pastor Simla said he was preparing this. He, he said his ministerial instincts revived, and, and he was preparing a nice little comforting speech. And he was going to tell him, hey, you're going to be in heaven soon, and, and you're going to get there before me, but, but I'll see you on the other side for all eternity. He, listen, listen to what he said. The Holy Spirit stopped me. No, a voice seemed to say. Fight for him. Cry out to me. I changed course. I began to intercede with intensity, fighting against the death that loomed before him. Oh, God, touch Ricardo with your power. This is not his time to die. Restore him for your glory, I pray. I remember even hitting my desk a couple times with my fist. The church also prayed fervently for Ricardo in a service that same day. Two days later, Pastor Simbola called Ricardo's wife, Betty. It's incredible, she reported. He went to sleep after the two of you talked, and the next day, all his vital signs had done a U-turn. He began to eat after taking almost nothing for days. And then within three weeks, he walked back into the church there in New York. God chose to heal him, at least for a period of time. Verse 6 tells us the result of Hezekiah's prayer. <clears throat> says, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. That's how we know this happened before chapter 36 and 37. And will defend this city. Now, Hezekiah, as far as we know, he didn't, he didn't ask anything about the city. He just prayed for his own life. But God said, I'm going I'm to add years to your life. And I'm going to deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrians. You see, God, as we know from Ephesians 3, does more than we can ask or even imagine. And that's what he did here for Hezekiah. Here's our first and just one simple point for you tonight. We respond to tragic news with urgent prayer. 
How do we respond to tragic news? Urgent prayer. Urgent prayer. Whatever it is, sickness, divorce, whatever's happening, we respond with urgent prayer. We cry out to God, and we just put it into his hands and say, God, I pray you would change it. I pray you would heal whatever the situation, and then we leave it with him, and we trust him. And sometimes he will do that. We saw that a few weeks ago with, with Rob Compton. We, we saw how God healed him. And other times, he, he, God chooses not to do that. And, uh, but I wonder, the question is, how many of us are praying with urgency tonight? I would imagine there's many of us that are praying with hesitancy. There's not an urgency, there's a hesitancy for some reason. We're, we're, I don't want to bother God, or, or I'm not sure if this is his will. And so there's a hesitancy instead of an urgency of, no, God, please, God, please intervene. Please show me what to do. Please save my child. Please give this person direction. What, whatever it is that's, that's going on. Um, I've been praying. Last week I learned a, a friend in ministry is, is having some uh, just made some poor decisions and is, is facing a tough road. And um, I've been praying for his marriage. Been praying. She, she, has every, she has a biblical reason to leave him. But I'm praying against that. I'm praying for reconciliation. I'm praying for repentance. I've been praying for forgiveness and j- just trusting that God will do that. So there should be an urgency in our prayer life. Let me give you just a few just quick application points, and I want us to, Pastor Ross is going to lead us in prayer. Just three questions, okay? These are all in the form of a question. Is there any unfinished business in your life? I mean, what if the Lord were to tell you tonight, you've got 15 years, or you've got one month, or you've got one year? Is there any unfinished business in your life? I'm not talking about goals or bucket lists, or I want to travel here. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about unfinished spiritual business, unfinished kingdom business. You know, there's something that's been on your heart. Man, I want to be a part of that. I want to plant a church. I want to do this mission. I want to, I want to start this nonprofit. Whatever it is, you just something that you've been dreaming about and thinking about, and or maybe it's telling your children your life story. Something that is has been brewing in your heart, but you just, I'll get to it one day. Is there any unfinished business in your life? You see, Hezekiah had 15 extra years, and he used those years well. He he did have a son, by the way. His son was named Manasseh, who became uh, king at age 12. So that means he was born after this moment here, this encounter with the Lord, 2 Kings 21. Now, according to 2 Chronicles, the last 15 years of Hezekiah's life were years of unusual material prosperity. He dug a tunnel. You've heard of Hezekiah's tunnel in, in Jerusalem there. They, it, was, it got water from outside of the, the city gate into Jerusalem. It's still there. You can, you can see it today. That, that happened within this 15-year period. You see, I think there was just an urgency to his life. They knew his time was short, so he got his family in order. He started, uh, people started migrating, immigrating to Jerusalem. He set the city up for success after he would be gone. And uh, His tunnel's an engineering marvel that people are still amazed at today. All of that happened in that 15-year period. He had unfinished business. Second, are you praying with urgency or hesitation? Urgent prayers don't have to be long prayers. Remember Peter's prayer in Matthew 14? Lord, save me. Because he, he, was, he was going down. He was about to drown. Lord, save me. That's an urgent prayer. It's not long. It's not, you know, all this filled with all this theology. Just Lord, save me. That's, ur- urgent prayers don't have to be fancy prayers. They just need to be genuine prayers. 
Third, are you keeping your mind, are you keeping in mind that your current trial can be used to build your faith? Are you keeping in mind that your current trial can be used to build your faith? Remember, this, this happened before chapter 36 and 37, right? So in, in 37, you have this great prayer of dependence on God. Where do you think he learned how to do that? Chapter 38, he had come to a near-death experience, and he cried out to God. He wept bitterly. That built his faith. And so when it comes to chapter 37, you got all these people against him. He knew how to pray. He knew how to cry out to God. 185,000 people dead just like that. God taught him through this crisis how to pray. Some of you have prayed with urgency for healing, and the healing didn't happen. Some of you cried out for a friend. Some of you cried out for your spouse. Some of you cried out for a number of people, and it didn't happen. God chose, for whatever reason, on this side of heaven not to bring healing. So what, what, what do we do with that? Well, Stephen knows something about that. Stephen knows something about praying with urgency. Stephen and his wife adopted a baby girl from China some years ago. She uh, was named Maria. And 2008, she was out playing in the, in the driveway, and one, her older brother came driving in with his vehicle and, of course, didn't see her, accidentally hit her, and she went down. Stephen tried CPR. She was taken to the hospital. Stephen prayed. He interceded for his daughter. He, he prayed for a miracle. He asked God's help to bring her back. She didn't make it. In 2016, the eighth anniversary of Maria's death, Stephen Curtis Chapman and his family were gathered where Maria's body was placed. And listen to these words that he, he, he uh, penned about that event. Every year we gather there to remember. We remember the little girl whose eyes disappeared when she smiled and who has changed our lives forever. We remember the pain and sadness of losing her, not that we ever forget. And, and most importantly, we remember the hope that we have and the promises of God that the story isn't over yet. The hope that, the, that has kept us breathing and moving forward these past eight years. This year, we read the story of Lazarus in John 11. And as we read there, or as we read, there was a phrase that I hadn't really noticed before. When Jesus saw Lazarus' sister Mary weeping, John says he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Then it goes on to paint a picture of Jesus that has been a great comfort and encouragement to me these last several years. The picture of Jesus standing with a grieving family at the grave of a friend with tears running down his cheeks. Jesus is weeping. He didn't scold Mary for her sadness or preach a sermon to her. His heart broke and he wept with her, just like he does with us. He doesn't leave us alone in our grief and sadness. He weeps with those who weep. My family and I needed to be reminded of that this past Saturday. Maybe you need to be reminded too. You see, our, God's, our job is to pray. God's job is to respond according to his will. And for some of you, I know some of you, and I know that you've not received the answer that you wanted. And my word to you based on this, God has heard your prayer. God has seen your tears. And now he stands with you, offering his comfort and his peace in the midst of those situations to give you the comfort that only he can give. Would you bow your heads with me?
Father, I thank you for the privilege of prayer. Uh, even in tragic situations, Lord, we can we don't have to have fancy words. We don't we don't have to try to impress you. We can just weep and just cast all of our cares upon you. And thank you that you care for us. We can cast all our anxieties on you. Uh, and Lord, I, I don't fully understand why you impressed this passage on my heart, but maybe there's just someone here who's struggling, who's still dealing with some type of situation that's weighing on their heart. And maybe they're wondering why you didn't intervene or they're struggling to understand. Uh, Lord, I pray you just minister to their heart tonight. Uh, we trust you. We know that you are a good God. Your steadfast love endures forever, for the Lord is good. And so we trust you. And uh, I just pray that, Father, we would learn to pray. And you'd forgive us when we complain. Forgive us when we just go in so many different directions instead of just coming to you and pouring out our heart to you. Lord, have mercy when we don't pray in faith. We don't pray trusting that you can bring healing, that you can change situations, that you can heal marriages, that you can bring someone back to life. So, Lord, teach us how to pray personally. Teach us how to pray as a church. And as, as Pastor Ross leads us, Lord, just uh, hear our prayers as a church. Lord, we want to be a praying church. Uh, these are important days with missions conference coming up, and we, we, we need your Holy Spirit to prepare us, Lord, for what you want to say to us. So, Lord, we just pray you'd be honored in this time and season of prayer. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.